Hello, this is Dr. Paul Cottrell, and I'm going to be talking about Kendo, Culture of the Sword by Dr. Bennett. He's, uh, he's one of those rare birds where they have two PhDs. Um, he received his first PhD from Kyoto University uh, around 2000, and he received the PhD um, he specialized in sociology and anthropology. And then in 2012, he was awarded another PhD in Japanese studies. He's a seventh dan uh, kendoka, um, a, a kendoist who, who studies the martial art of, of uh, sword fighting. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to discuss the um, the book that he has kendo the culture of the of the of the sword and here is a, a basically a match that's taking place um, that's a competition for kendo so a lot of people will practice this martial art in the dojo or in in a private setting and then they'd go to these matches and they they would compete and you would, you have three areas that you can, uh, or four areas that you can hit and uh, to, to earn a point. And whoever scores two points first uh, wins. So that's what's going on in the background there. So to start, uh, the author, Dr. Bennett, he's, uh, he's here. This is, um, this is a, probably a more recent picture. He has his shinai, which is the which is the bamboo stick, and he has his his uh, men, the, the helmet that they're wearing, and the armor for protection. This is probably a picture post twenty twelve, so this is this is when he's already received the two PhDs. So Let's talk about his book. Now, the book came out last year in 2015. So I highly recommend you reading it. There's the book. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through some of the, the, um, the highlights of the book. So, what's nice about this book compared to some other Kendo books is that it's more from a scholarly point of view. Okay, now what I mean by that is, is he's, he's explaining Kendo um, in terms of um, the history of it, the cultural aspects of it. He did his, he did his thesis um, talking about swords, swordsmanship, and um, the cultural identity, um, and you, they, definitely some of that came out in the book. Um, instead of just talking about the way to practice kendo, this book is more about uh, the history of kendo. So this this picture that I'm showing you, th this is the the main parts of the armor. 
So you have the, the headgear, the men, the doe is the, the chest armor, the cote protects the wrists and the hands, and the tare tare is the um, is the kind of like the uh, the lower the lower part of, of, of the guard. And then there is the shinai. The shinai is the bamboo stick. So you can see here that they're actually using to hit to hit each other with. Um, and the idea is to to either hit at the at the cote, which is the wrist, at the uh, throat area, um, which is ski. The men is the head, and uh, the other area is the doe, which is the side. Of, of the torso, either the right or the left. This picture shows in steps um, when they are approaching each other, um, one person attacking and trying to hit the men and, and following the, you know, that men strike procedure. Now in Kendo, there is um, some requirements to justify to justify a strike. So kendo stands for sword way, and it's a it's a modern martial art, uh, Japanese martial art, but it has a lot of history to it. And the book discusses that how the the history progresses, and I'll, I'll hit some of the main points of it. But the philosophy of of kendo the purpose of it to mold the mind in the body to cultivate a vigorous spirit and through correct and and rigid training to strive for improvement in the art of kendo to hold in esteem human courtesy and honor to associate with others with sincerity and to forever pursue the cultivation of oneself thus will one be able to love one's country and society to contribute to the development of culture and to promote peace and prosperity among the peoples. So that's the, the main purpose of Kendo when it's been codified uh, in 1975 by the All Japan Kendo Federation, which is the AJKF. Um, the concept of Kendo is a way to dis discipline the human character through the application of the principles of the katana. So, um, I talked about the gear that you 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 uh, you wear. There are different titles. There's um, a one dan to a ninth dan. So, in his book, he covers the history of Kendo. And here's a chart where there is one Dan through nine Dan. And 
you can see how the population diminishes rapidly in the male and female population as you go up the higher levels. So as of 2014, in Japan, there were only four nine dans in kendo, so it's extremely hard to get. Uh, there were 662 eight dans, no women dans that were that were in the eighth or ninth dan category. Seven dans, there are about 246 females and 16,134. The one dan level, there's about a, a little bit more than half a million dans, one dans males and about a quarter of a million females. So that's the population distribution in, in registered dan holders in Japan. Now Here's a picture of a medieval uh, battlefield in about the mid-1500s or so. And you can see that the warriors um, were, on, were uh, using katanas and larger staffs. So this kind of gives you a feel of what the, the battlefield may have looked like when they were wearing their their armor. Um, it doesn't show any arrows, uh, bows and arrows, which was a very popular thing to use. But um, this is a, a representation of what a, a battlefield might have looked like. In the 1500s. Now, here's a picture of a, um, a sketch in the early 19th century of kendo uh, armor. So you can see the kotes, which is the, the protection of the hands and protection of the, of the chest. And the, the men, um, you see the, 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 the staff and the boken, and the boken is the wooden uh, uh, sword versus the bamboo sword, which is the shinai. Now here is an illustration of showing um, this fencing technique using either the shinai or what is called the yari. So you can see uh, the protective gear and and um, the technique is different for those two 
weapons. Here's a picture of a kendo um, competition using the shinai's and you can see one's trying to hit with a men's strike in the foreground and in the background um, you can see someone putting on their cotes so this is this is uh, done in 1897 this individual here is from the Meiji period which is um, kind of like late 1800s, um, early 1900s. And he's carrying his, what, you know, he's carrying his katana and his, his, his uh, smaller sword, the long sword and the short sword, but he's also carrying over his shoulder the shinai. And he has the men hanging from the back of the shinai and he also has the dough plate, but he also has another type of dough plate, a more of an older dough plate that could be wrapped. It's made out of bamboo in, in the front of the shinai. This picture here is an older representation of the men and this wrapping, this wrapped version of the dough which protects the, 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 the upper chest and the, the rest of the torso for the dough strike. This person here is Takasugi Shinsaku. Um, he lived from 1839 to 1867 and he was a samurai from the Chosh, Choshu domain and he was uh, a, a legendary swordsman um, and he can and uh, and he um, you know perpetuated or helped to perpetuate what is called the Shishi movement the Shishi movement, I believe, was the movement where the samurais started, I'll get to it a little later, but the samurais, during this time period, the, the samurais were uprising to try to um, get back to the old way instead of having modern modernism. Um, making their class uh, a, um, a dinosaur and, and, and obsolete. This is a European drawing of samurai engaging in training. Um, you can see that they're using the, 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 the long sticks, the yari, and uh, looks like they have shinais. I don't think they're using bokens here. It looks like they're using the shinais. What's interesting though in the European drawings is that they don't have any of the protective gear. It looks like it's all non-protective.
Now in this drawing shows the um, the matches. So this is similar to what you're seeing in the video here, where you there you have one you have two swordsmen that are fighting each other and to try to get get points and there's a referee to determine if that point was made or not. Now Now the book is very interesting because it goes through the, the, the full history of it and how it became go in favor and out of favor. I wanted to show you some of the pictures first before I went into the history. Here's a picture of children learning um, kendo um, at a shrine, what is the Yasu Kuni Shrine in 1941. So this is during World War II and kendo was one of the instruments to help militarize the people. What I like about this picture is, is you have on the, in the right the, the kendoist um, in, in armor, you know, full suited, and you have the children with, with the hakama and um, you know, just the cloth. There's a cloth that's under all this 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 armor. So they're just wearing the cloth, and they have the the shinies. This picture here is a 1943 um, photograph of military cadets. Uh, practicing their their swordsmanship on these these uh, dummies, and these pictures are of of Winston Churchill and uh, FDR. So you can see that kendo, in a strange sense, was starting to um, militarize these these uh, cadets. Here's another um, 1944 picture of using the boken or wind sword to um, to practice kendo. So in kendo, there is what is called kata, where you study the katas using the boken, and you know you do these these movements, and then the shinai is what's actually used in in um, in competition. Now, if you use the boken in competition, you'd be destroying the the armor because it's it's solid wood. I believe it's maple. And um, while the bamboo is designed in a way to be able to absorb a hit, um, so it doesn't break that easily. Um, so it can absorb. It flexes a little bit, and. It doesn't do the damage to the armor as a Vulcan would. Now, 
Now, Kendall was going in and out of favor in the society, depending on what epoch they were in. But not just that. It was also when the Allied forces took over, uh, when the United States uh, took over Japan and it was doing the reconstruction, they banned Kendo. So they, Kendo went through this small period of trying to become more like fencing. And this, they call it Shinai Kyogi, um, which is the closest thing of merging Kendo and fencing together. And you can see the, the doe uh, protection is a lot different. The headgear is, is a lot different. Um, it's almost kind of like this was the beginnings of uh, making it more of a sport um, post-World War II. It didn't last for very long. And then we have, here's another picture uh, in 1956, there was a championship for this Shinai Kiyogi um, um, competition. Very similar movements. Um, the gear that they used was different. But you can see in the background, Kendoists also practicing um, left of the of the picture. Okay, now. During the, there were, um, during the Meiji period, there were individual, Meiji period was kind of like the modernization of, of Japan. And during the Meiji period was when you had the Shishi movement that was taking place. So you had the modernization that was coming in, but then you also had this, this uh, movement, uh, the Shishi movement trying to prevent the modernization and the abolishment of the, the samurai class in, in Bushido. So here you have some some um, Europeans dressed in the in the uh, armor, and they were kendoists. So during this during the Meiji period, you know there was still there, there were the beginnings of Westerners studying uh, kenjutsu. Now, here's um, Gordon Warren, um, Kendoist. This is in 1956. What's interesting about him is, one, he's kind of a big guy. He's over six feet tall. But he lost his leg in one of the battles of World War II. So he was actually a, at the time of this picture, he was a three-dan. And... Um, but to be able to compete without, you know, without a leg, you know, it's pretty phenomenal here. Now, I think what he was doing is he had an artificial leg when he was in his competition. Now, this picture is showing Warner in the left. And, um, 
taking what is called the Joe Dan stance. You see, you're you know you're you're holding it up here, and and when you're holding it above your head, um, you're somewhat. It, it, it a lot of people will hold the the Shanai straight, like the one that's on the right side of the picture, but when you're holding it above your head, um, you're somewhat ready to strike the men very quickly. Um, it may be harder to strike the doe, so you're somewhat unprotected from the doe, but um, it, is a, it, it is a stance that can, that can, um, that can win. In this case, he, he lost the tournament because of a thrust to the throat in a, in a uh, cote strike. And the last picture I have here, which I think is a kind of a neat picture, is showing the difference between um, a Japanese typical uh, kendo outfit with the hakama and the kyogi, I think it's called, um, compared to the trousers that the Taiwanese individual in the, in the white is uh, is wearing so it's a little bit different style. Um, they still have the doe and the the tari ray. Um, they have the men and the cotes. They're still using the same shinais, but the uh, the actual clothing that's underneath the armor is a little slightly different. And this is in 1970. So what I want to do is kind of just give you my thoughts on the on the book and um, and what I got out of it so that's kind of like just a little overview of some of the pictures that are presented in the book and, and a little bit of the history um, and what is what someone wears during in, in kendo but kendo is something that you that takes many 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 years of study it's not something that, that you can just uh, learn a little bit and then, you know, you just go. It takes, it took me uh, one year to actually understand that when you take the shinai and you move forward in uh, uh, Same, um, when you, when the two sticks are moving and you're, you're hitting, it, when I was first practicing, you would block the dough. The dough is coming in from the side. You block the dough and hit the men. And you block the dough, then move with your legs to hit the men. So now, you know, over a year of, of study of this, to, the point is, is to try to be more fluid in your mo movements and, and, and you have no mind where it's automatic. So there's this... There's this buildup of, of um, spirit and, and, and uh, muscle memory, and there's this um, immediacy and no fear. And when someone's coming in at the doe strike, you, you actually lift your right foot and lunge forward for the men's strike, but as you do that, you're hitting, you're blocking the doe or you're blocking a men strike and you hit a men. So you're actually 
you save a step instead of block the dough, move the foot forward, then hit the men. You actually are moving the foot forward, block the dough at the same time, and hit the men, and you get about a, you know half a second difference, which would allow for a strike. But to be able to have that muscle memory and understanding of that movement. So you're more fluid in your perfect men's strike took a year. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's something that it takes a quite a, quite a bit of time. So what I'd like to do is just kind of discuss the, the book. The book is primarily about the history and the culture of Kendo in Japan, not about technique. Now there's lots of books on technique. Um, there, if someone is new to kendo, there is uh, kendoforlife.com uh, that one could go and actually get videos and, and and books and 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 figure out what equipment needs to be bought and where you can find a dojo to learn and all this. It's uh, it's not some. If someone wants to do this, I I recommend that. If you want, if you're just looking to just be fit, it's probably not the right thing to do. You can do, you know, get some sort of physical fitness uh, videos or whatever, or, you know, do marathons or triathlons or something like that. But if you really are looking for something that is developing the cerebellum, and developing your your primal brain in, in terms of being able to control your emotion, be able to control your breathing, being able to control your adrenaline levels and go into no mind and be able to have muscle memory um, and 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 to see opportunity and strike and not to not to capitulate because of external forces coming to you. The moment you realize that you're fighting yourself, you're developing yourself, and it's not about your opponent, you start becoming a much better kendoist. Because if you, if you master yourself, the opponent is not going to be able to fight you. You'll be, they'll, you'll be able to, to they'll, they'll see that, and it sucks the energy out of them, and then because it sucks the energy out of them, there's that that fraction of a second hesitation. The idea but with no mind and being able to to not fear um, uh, losing a point or losing is is quintessential to, to, to being able to do first strike. Having that ability to just see a movement that's coming to you. So when something's happening very fast, your mind actually actually processes it by by the perception is it's slowing time down. Even though in real time it's not. It's the same time, but 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 in mental time, things are slowing down and when you're in no mind, you can again raise your foot you're expecting the hit. You 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 block hit. 
or they miss a move or an opportunity and you hit. Um, so it takes a long time to develop that those muscles, that muscle memory, that kinematic um, schema in the cerebellum and being able to control the, the, the primal brain, uh, the hippocampus, the thalamus, you know, your, your occipital lobe and being able to see and process and it, it's activating the cerebellum and then, and, you know, in, in your, in your, all this stuff has to happen in, in splits of a second. And it, that's why it takes many years. But because you're doing this many years and you're exercising your muscles, that's why these nine dans or eight dans that are in their um, 60s, 70s, some of them are 80 or 90 years old, they are still very vibrant physically and mentally because you're activating and controlling your primal brain, your cerebellum, and your occipital lobes and being able to process all this in splits of a second. So this is kind of proof and still more empirical evidence needs to take place from a physiological perspective of the benefits of kendo. Um, activating muscles, having this no, you know, this meditative no mind concept that where you're controlling the primal brain and lowering your blood pressure, um, uh, controlling your insulin, controlling your, uh, your cortical steroids, uh, being able to control the, um, the adrenaline levels. Um, it's amazing to see someone that's an, an eight Dan and compare them to a four Dan. The four, you know, the early Dan's probably all the way up to six Dan, you know, the, the, one through five, they, they hit all very rapid. It's a lot of force. Um, it, when you go into six Dan through nine Dan, you start seeing that it's not about hitting. It's about toying with the opponent because both opponents have a lot of experience in no mind um, and a lot of experience with developing their occipital and cerebral cortexes and stuff like this and they have a lot of muscle memory so it's really about wearing the person down in same um, getting to them to make a mistake getting them to defeat themselves and this is where this this force is being sucked out of you if, you, if you're fighting against someone that's very good they actually they're, they're pulling your force out and you make mistakes, either physical mistakes or mental mistakes. And you lose that, that, that no mind and spirit. Um, so there's, there's, there's a, it's not just physical conditioning, like most modern sports. There's a lot of mental conditioning. And it's not just, you know, like there, there's mental conditioning in baseball and basketball and football and soccer because, of, you know, one team could be winning and you lose momentum and you start to capitulate and you lose more points. That's not what I mean. I, there is a, there's, um, there's a, there's a, there's this connection between neurological development, 
hormonal um, control and um, physical physical connecting of that all together that I think most sports and psychology it doesn't you know when when you think of a Buddhist you think of a Buddhist that's controlling breathing and meditation when you think of modern sports it's more physicality kendo is kind of bringing these two together in a strange way and then when you do it for a while you start seeing the, the huge benefits of this so in the book he talks about you know the benefits of this so um, so basically in the epilogue um, during the Takugawa period the Takugawa period is like this post-war period all right um, there was lots of warring then the Takugawa period made a lot of peace and because of the, the samurai class didn't have much to do because they you were using you know war as a means of, of doing things right um, just keep up with their skills because they were class-based um, they started these martial arts schools and in Kenjitsu with Kendo so Kenjitsu the study of Kenjitsu was one of the arts that made up the so-called Bugei Ju Hapen or 18 military skills that the warriors depending on rank were required to learn so these included archery horsemanship grappling arts gunmanship spearmanship and then in the, the specialist Jinjitsu uh, Kenjitsu schools however far outnumbered those of other modes of, of combat art with as many as 700 ri, uh, ruha, ruha in existence at the 19th century um, so during this Takugawa period and um, they you know they had a they studied these martial martial arts and it started becoming more of an art form than a warring warring form so he concludes with the the book on his conversation with a eight dan person hanshi is what they're called and this is uh yoshi yoshi hiko um who uh, Bennett, Dr. Bennett, considered to be one of the greatest, uh, most inspirational kendo masters of the post-war era. So he asked him this question, what is correct kendo versus incorrect kendo, right? So what is correct kendo? To whom does it really belong? He replied, this is Yoshihi, Yoshihiko, replied, kendo is universal wisdom that teaches us the supreme value of life through knowing the techniques of death. Kendo is always correct. There is no such thing as incorrect kendo, just incorrect practitioners. It has always been that way from time immemorial. It isn't a matter of race, age, gender, or class. It's just a matter of intent. 
So, you know, this guy ate Dan. It takes a lot of your life to get there. I mean, it's, you know, it's like getting a PhD. So, um, maybe even harder. <laughs> so, um, but what's interesting in the book is near the end of the book, it talks about this idea that as kendo becomes more of a sport, um, is it losing the essence of what kendo is? This idea of no mind, this idea of there's there's this um, meditative aspect to it and um, psychological benefit, but when you make it more of an international sport. Um, you have Westerners practicing things, so you have a meme of the sport, a mutation of the sport, that is quite different than maybe the way it was in Japan. And you got to look at Japan in different periods. Kendo changed over different periods. So the idea is, is that there are these factions in Japan that the, the federation that, that started, that instituted kendo internationally in the 70s um, is the factions are well you have to be purist kendo to maintain the cultural the, the cultural benefits of it the um, the mental benefits of it the physical benefits of it the other faction is saying well this is becoming more of a sport and you should more focus on the physical aspects and getting a point See the problem here is is that when you're when you go into no mind, you you when you when you try and do attack, you don't care if you get hit or not. So therefore, you're you're able to get that split second hit. Well, in sports, um, and again, kendo is about perfecting yourself, not getting a point. Well, when you turn it into more of a sport, then it's about more, getting a point. So you're you you are blocking more often than you're attacking. And therefore, you're not developing the, the no mind aspect of it. You're more in a defense mode constantly. So it's like, uh, block, 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 wear out your opponent hit. Well, what I was talking about before, you see the opponent moving towards you. You're in no mind. You're, while you're attacking, you can block and hit. So I think that what's happening is in the sport, you're hitting, you're blocking, blocking, blocking hit instead of, I'm attacking, blocking, and hitting it all. This is all one fluid movement. So, um, so the idea from the eighth Dan that he's saying there's, you know, what's correct kendo. So the, you know, this faction within Japan and, and Westerners studying kendo is the idea that is kendo a sport or is it really this? It's a quasi-sport, and, and it's, there's physical development, but there's also neurological development happening. There's med meditation that's taking place. There's controlling of the, of the primal brain, the hippocampus, the thalamus, um, you know. And as information's coming through your, your, your retina and going into your occipital lobe, it's being processed through, through the, the midbrain, too. Um, so the the idea here is that you you have some people that say it's more of a sport. Some people are saying no, it's more of a cultural thing. Now the ones that are saying it's more of a sport 
are primarily more of the Western types, but you do have that in Japan too. But there's this, this flip also where you have ones in Japan that's saying, well, anyone that's Western is studying Kendo, so they're not really studying true Kendo because they're not Japanese. So there's kind of like a nationalistic pride that's taking place or, or somewhat of a racism that's saying that you can't study Kendo because you're not a Japanese person and there's no way that you would understand the cultural aspects of Kendo and some of the nuances to really understand Kendo. I, I disagree because once you meet the three requirements of Kendo, which is this this idea of um, of um, you know spirit and, and, and mind and, and movement, um, that you will obtain knowledge over time through observation, through practice, and through just controlling and defeating yourself where you become a true kendoist and i think that's what the han she was saying he you know that if you correct kendo isn't based on if it's f from japan you can be correct kendo if you're from korea or from united states you have to defeat yourself you have to get to know mind you have to be in the spirit and movement you know and uh, you know control your 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 yourself um, so I think that's a very fitting point now to to go to the some of the historical main points so basically you had during the medieval period um, swordsmanship this is the samurais they were fighting each other there were a lot of warring clans that were taking place these these uh, lords um, would have uh, develop a following and and they they usually paid them in, in, in you know to, to, to follow to follow the lord and these samurais would fight on the battlefield similar to knights in in, the, in Europe and kingdoms would be developed so there was a lot of need in study of spears you know horse horsemanship um, archery swords weren't usually a a major component in this medieval weaponry type environment primarily because it was easier to use the arch the archery uh, techniques to get to the opponent but then if it was hand-to-hand -hand combat then you know you, you're, you're talking about spears or you're talking about swords um, so the swords was somewhat of an ancillary um, thing um, during the Middle Ages but there was always this the sword compared to all the other weapons seem to have more of the soul of the of the warrior of the samurai and it's always been emblematic of of what a samurai is um, now the art of of living chapter talks about um, 
early modern Kinjitsu. And they didn't. The Takogawa period was was from 1603 to 1868. So again, you had the unification of Japan. It was peaceful, and for a couple hundred years or so, you you know you had a samurai class that had high esteem but did nothing really to do. So their skill sets were starting to wear down, and what they had to do was do this mock fighting using kendo, um, using these different martial arts, and they became um, more choreographed, similar to what we have with kata. So you, you study, in kendo, not only are you studying to build up your muscles and your, and your, in controlling your mind and all this, but you learn movements with the shinai and with the boken. And uh, katas, there's, uh, for kendo, there's basically 10 katas. There can be more, but, you know, there's the, the basic ones are t is 10. So you're practicing these katas, and they're, they're more um, choreographed, either from a blocking perspective or an attacking perspective. And you kind of can learn why certain movements should be the way they are. So if you learn kata very well and apply it to... Um, um, the actual matches, I think you have a better understanding of why the movements are the way they are, and then you can kind of like maybe uh, mutate them when you get six dan or higher. You, 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 can, you can kind of mutate these in combinations to be able to um, um, be more of an, a, a, more of an opponent more of a competitive opponent and be able to control the no mind um, instead of just block, 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 hit. Yeah, so it's important to learn kata, but they're more choreographed. And if you use kata in a during the medieval period, it probably wouldn't have worked. They're, the, the kata doesn't necessarily mean that they were battle-tested. Probably a lot of this stuff, um, it was more free-form in real life when you were on the battlefield and killing each other. Um, versus some of the more um, codified movements and choreographed movements in kata that created the rules for a sport, but also helped to develop the physical cap the physicality and the mentalness, the psychological um, health to be able to be in that situation and, and to, to react. Um, so kata is kind of a later thing, as during this Takugawa period, it, you, um, the arts were starting to develop more in more of a codified way, more choreographed way, and may may have not necessarily in all cases, but may have deviated from uh, true combat and and became more of an art form. Um, So during this period of time, you know, that, that uh, you know, commoners weren't allowed to carry swords and only samurais were allowed to. So, you know, you know, a samurai would, you know, maintain a certain esteem. Um, but they, they, they were losing, they were losing their importance because it was a peaceful time period. 
And then when Westerners came uh, on board, in chapter three, you know, we're now we're talking about, well, in chapter two, it starts talking about the, in the 1600s, the Dutch came over and, 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 and were trying to do trade with them. And then you had uh, Commodore Perry in the 1800s. Um, the realization that Westerners were building up technologies and that the, you know, that first sign of weapons, um, they needed to learn gun, gunnery. But there was factions within this, uh, the Japanese hierarchical system, especially in, in the samurai class, where, you know, one faction would say we have to learn the Western methods so we can we can protect ourselves and fight each other actually you know they were they were infighting within japan but there were others that were the purists that were saying that the western technology you know was bad and you know we should stay away from it but what happened was there was a political movement and probably rightfully so that said that well we need to learn the methods of the westerners to be able to protect ourselves and to learn the technology but that set in motion it was because of the path dependency of this. The it set in motion this this uh, erosion of the need for the old way of, of of bushido, and went more into this concept of um, modern warfare. Then they expel the Westerners because of Christian Christianity Christian Christian um, religion was was starting to. Um, propagate in, in in Japan, so they pushed out the proselytizers to try to maintain this this uh, Japanese ness um, around the sixteen late sixteen hundreds, early seventeen hundreds, and so that it went back to like a pure pureness Japan. All right, but they had modern. They had kind of somewhat of a modern um, uh, understanding, at least at the sixteen hundred level of, of technology, the weapons and stuff like this. So there was this about two hundred or so years later. Then you have Commodore Perry coming back, and the Western technology is far greater, and um, this is during the. Meiji period where you know things had to change um, and that was kind of the the breakdown of the samurai class and the 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 rising up of the shishi movement so the fall and rise of the samurai culture um, was partially because of the beginnings of the Takugawa period, because you didn't, it was peaceful. So it became samurai, bushido, and all that. The actual pragmaticness of it became less, uh, less a need. Um, so it became more of, a, of an art, but this, this, um, this class, because it wasn't needed, uh, became more burdensome to the society and the merchants became more and more powerful because they were loaning money to the samurai class but the samurai class didn't have means to actually be productive in the society so they became more and more in debt 
and the merchant class actually rose while the samurai class went down and there's this kind of this expulsion of, of this this well why do we need the samurais and you know all this and then the westerners come in um, in the 1600s and they learn from the technology there's more infighting that's that's taking place um, they expel the the westerners this is where you have um, the Hatagana and the in the kanji and then when you had the westerners come in there was the ta ta uh, 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 ta takagana i think it's called um, where you have japanese you have english words from western words that that are that are um, the calligraphy is different so you can discern what is a japanese word or a western word or western concept so the hatagama katagama and you know kanji so they had this, these different alphabets to, to learn there was kind of like the splitting of what's japanese what's not japanese now in in um the the erosion of this of, of during this period how does kendo come in into place so remember kendo is the study of the sword so they were practicing in medieval periods real real uh, um, pragmatic uses of the sword in other other martial arts well, during the Takagawa period, you start getting into this more um, um, finessed art form of, of martial arts, but still to maintain physical readiness, um, military readiness, just in case it, it, uh, it needed to be called upon. Now, in the Meiji period, we had a lot of modernization that's taking place um you had um the like almost a ride there was because because commodore perry comes in and you know it's gun gunboat diplomacy japanese are fearful so what it is is it's resurrecting the need for the samurai clan uh, the samurai class but in a modern way so what that basically means is um, what that basically means is some of the bushido concepts may not apply to a modern day warfare um, so that was kind of like kind of like a split the ones that wanted to be purists the shishis and the ones that wanted to be a little bit more modern uh, western warfare um but it still needed that resurrection of of that national spirit um uh, physical readiness that uh that was taking place during the the 1800s and early 1900s So in 1873, the imperial government established a modern construct army, and kinjitsu and other martial arts gave way to modern methods of warfare. 
Nevertheless, centuries of sword worship could not be so easily done away with. The sword's symbolic potency continued to make it irresi irresistible. So, you know, during this period, 1873, you know, there was this, this big need for this modernization. Um, but there was still kind of like this holdback of the old, the olden days of, of, of um, the need to, to, to have Bushido because of the pre-Takugawa period, but also the desire to have the finessed art during the, the Takugawa era. Um, then, with the resurgence of Kenjutsu in the mid-Meiji period, which is 1868 to 1912, the idea that the martial arts were representative of a noble warrior past and therefore a maker of national superiority was reinforced and increasingly exploited. So, as the, the threat level started to increase, the political establishment was saying, well, you know, we have to be prepared. And there was kind of this rising of, of the need for, for Bushido and, 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 uh, and Kijinjitsu um, um, thoughts. So there was this increase in, you know, practicing warfare um, and putting it into the schools and, and teaching them nationalism and, 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 and physical preparedness. Um, it's interesting because it seems as though the states actually put in uh, PE uh, curriculum, physical education curriculum, when there is a, a, a threat to be exercised um, after these children get out, you know, 10 years later or whatever, to actually put them in a war um, setting. That PE may be actually the signal for a future conflict in, in schools. When you institute uh, physical education in schools, it's a signal that 10, 15 years later, you might be uh, having more of a uh, more of a external conflict. So, so during this period of time, the 1868 to 1912, um, Kenjutsu Kenjutsu was not um, not considered just fencing. See, before that, um, before that, this you know this Meiji period, this this early Meiji period, late. Takugawa period, um, it, you know, when the, when the, I guess it's the early Meiji period, when there wasn't the need for the, the, the samurai and the samurai class was starting to fall, it's like, oh, kendo, that's just a bunch of fencers. So it's always, we always kind of look at things in the, in the sense of what's pragmatic at the time. Like, for example, people go to school and they may uh, go into a field of study that doesn't seem to have many job prospects, so they would assume that, well, that's useless. Um, you know, some people would say, well, a liberal arts degree is useless because, you know, you need engineers and programmers and, and accountants and, and finance people and everything else. Um, not realizing that the zeitgeist of, of what is needed in the job market changes.
but you can get benefits and learn things from these different disciplines. And if you cross discipline, you actually have more education than being in some siloed educational system. So something similar was taking place in Kendo. It's, well, the samurai class was going down in, in the mid, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the late Takagawa and early Meiji period. And the need for them diminished radically. There was a changing zeitgeist in the society. And it was like, well, these people that are practicing these things, they're not benefiting the society. They're just um, practicing war. That's an old style of warfare um, that doesn't mean anything anymore. It's kind of like uh, comparing, let's say, the Delta Force or, or let's say uh, a SEAL Team 6 warrior to, let's say, a medieval knight. Uh, you know, what's the point of studying medieval knight uh, techniques? when you have this modern day warfare techniques that are taking place. Um, that was kind of the, the zeitgeist of the moment at the time in the, in the early Meiji period. But then when you start moving into the mid Meiji period and late Meiji period, then you're talking about, well, they're ramping up to, you know, they're, they're seeing the threat from Western, uh, Western civilization, the beginnings of World War I, the movement towards World War II, and they needed to be ready. Well, you had to, you had to militarize the people and, and build na nationalism. Well, the best way to do that is to to, to resurrect this idea of bushido and the, and the samurai and and teach children at a young age the uh, kinjitsu and and practicing the um, the the actual um, the art of of kendo. So it. During this period, it became more and more pragmatic um, in the mid Meiji period. Um, and it's very possible that as time goes on, that it's not the technologists that are going to be important to the workforce, but actually the, the liberal arts majors. Um, that there are probably the need for technologists, the need for liberal arts. Um, is episodic and cyclical. Um, so that landscape, that zeitgeist landscape of, 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 of the job market will change over time. And we see this in Kenjutsu. The need for the samurai was very high pre-Takugawa. It petered off in the Takugawa period. And the, the early Meiji period it, it really dropped off the need and anyone that was, you know, was like almost like they're, they're the parasites of society. And then all of a sudden the ramp up the need for nationalism and, and protection of, of the nation and this external enlargement during World War One and World War II um, needed to resurrect some of the, the, the militariness of Bushido and to build up that spirit. To engage that warfare at a young age, ken, kendo was was used for that. So there was this dropping of the samurai clan, the samurai class, and then and then the rising of the samurai class in the mid mid Meiji period. Um, but you got to remember the shishis wanted to be the purists, while the the political establishment wanted a more modern day uh, method of bushido.
All right, so now, you know, we go into after World War One, and we're, you know, we're in now the early stages of World War Two, um, and uh, you know, there's this huge national spirit that's taking place to, to do the external enlargement in Korea, in China, in, in the Asian islands, and to fight the, the U.S. So schools were used to, you know, in, institute warfare um, and, and, uh, and develop nationalism. So during this kind of like Takugawa period and mid, mid, uh, I'm sorry, um, early Meiji period, Kinjitsu was kind of like, they, it went through like a civil, uh, a civilizing process. Um, less warfare, more art. Then as you go into the mid-Meiji period, post-late-Meiji um, uh, period, now you're talking about the, the, um, the de-civilization of Kendo and instituting a war mentality into it. And then, um, you know, of course, the the Ministry of Education was instituting in 1916 the, you know, the, the use of, of uh, kendo in, in, in the curriculum. And then after the war, after the war, um, the United States comes in, they're doing the reconstruction effort, and they're basically saying, well, we're going to abolish the study of the martial arts um, because it militarizes the children, not understanding that there was a civilized version of Kendo during the Takugawa period and the early Meiji period. Um, and then, I think around 1948 or early 50s then it then um, practitioners above ground were 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 starting to practice kendo in the in the dojos but there was always an underground movement during this abolishment from from the United States during the reconstruction period um, there was kind of like this underground movement of of dojos and, and, and practicing of kendo, um, so it's interesting that it's kind of, kendo in a, in, a, in a strange way similar to orthodoxy in, in Judaism, where there was this rise and fall of, of, of pragmatism in, in, in the need of the religion. Normally, the need for observance in Judaism at the uh, at the correct level of observance usually is during periods of stress. Uh, periods of economic hardship, uh, periods of external uh, forces onto the Jewish people, and then when when times are really good, when times you know become more prosperous, the observance levels of of um, the observance levels of of Judaism starts to wane, 
and um, only the Orthodox maintain the rituals. And there's this zeitgeist that, that in periodicity that's, that changes. So you have like this underground movement and then above ground movement, then an underground movement again, and above ground movement. So during, during the, um, during this, this, it's something similar is taking place when the society is doing very, very well economically, um, you know, the, the kendo becomes more of a sport while Judaism is more of a just, uh, uh, cultural, um, a cultural observance. When kendo was tried to be abolished by external forces, either because of the allies, uh, the allied forces, or because of, um, the, the, deconstruction of the samurai class um, you always had this underground movement to try to maintain kendo and, and, and maintain the uh, how to do it and how to you know how, what are the techniques and to, to pass those techniques down just like in Judaism where you had this underground movement to make sure that Torah and, and the Talmud at the underground level will still be passed on to future generations instead of abolishing it so there's, I see a lot of similarities between between the kendo and, and, and tr um, correct kendo and um, sport kendo, if you want to call it that. So now in his chapter five, he talks about kendo as a sport. So uh, after World War II and the reconstruction effort and the United States pulls out, kendo starts to climb up in, in popularity in the United States. Um, and as it's climbing up in popularity in the United States, you don't have the mil the militarism of it. So there was a there, there was a civilizing process back into kendo, um, and it became more of an it starts to become more international in the 70s, 60s, uh, early 70s. So the federation, the Japanese federation, um, wanted to make sure that another nation doesn't take over the concept of kendo and push it into a direction that's more sport-like instead of losing some of the cultural and uh, metaphysical characteristics of kendo. So that's kind of like the modern, um, um, the, you know, the beginnings of, uh, of uh, kendo coming above ground after World War II and then becoming more of a sport. Um, and inside this was this infighting that I was telling you about where you had something similar was going on with the Shishi movement. So Kendoists in, in post-World War II would go, well, it should be like pure Kendo versus this sport Kendo. Um, just like the Shishi movement was saying, well, you're going to have warriors that should be pure samurai-type warriors, or you're going to have this more modern um, uh, warrior that's using Western technology. And this, during this period of time, the 1950s, you know, this uh, Shinai Kiyogi um, concept was uh, was starting to take place and um, 
This was the fencing concept. Then, now we, you know, go into somewhat of a modern age, uh, you know, the 1970s to, to now, where it's federated. There is a movement towards um, making it more of a sport internationally. There was somewhat of a movement to try to make it a a Olympic sport. Um, people say that, well, to really master kendo, it's a lifetime experience, so you know it doesn't lend itself to like, you know, ten years of study. Ten years of study doesn't get you very far in kendo. Um, it's a lifelong, lifelong endeavor. Um, not only that, it's it's not about just getting points. Where if it was an Olympic sport, it'd be just about getting points. So it's block, 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 hit instead of move, be in no mind, block and hit. Um, and to get that takes a lot of effort. Um, and it's not about the point. It's about the self-determination and, and, and self-reflection and self-improvement, um, which doesn't lend itself to an Olympic sport. Um, and more and more dojos around the world are starting to take place. Um, videos with modern technology allow people to, to, to learn the art, but there's this, there's this concern that, you know, as people, as it spreads around the world, that you're going to lose some of the key characteristics of kendo. Um, people can learn kendo and get physical benefit from it, but it may deviate from correct kendo. And, uh, you know, so you need to, to be cognizant that it's not just technique and getting a, getting a point, but it's also the controlling of the mind and the spirit um, and, uh, and self-reflection. So that's basically the book. And I, I highly recommend that you, you know, you read it if you're interested in just the history of, of um, swordsmanship. In, in Japan and how uh, Kendo has risen and fallen from the Takugawa period all the way to the modern age. So uh, you can reach me at uh, Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Paul Cottrell. My uh, videos are on YouTube and you can also reach me on my website which is www.the-studio-reykjavik.com, which is uh, in the, the description section. So there's a link there. And um, please leave some comments on you know, my videos that you get to see, and hopefully uh, uh, you enjoy uh, what, I, I, what I try to do uh, in terms of book reviews, my, my concepts of current events or finance or economics um, or even science topics. So um, please uh, reach out and uh, leave a comment. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.